The internet is an ocean that we invent as we explore it. In the murky darkness of virtual places, there could be dragons, shagoths, leviathans. Certainly I have heard voices on the web who say we will discover or build a god when we reach the cyber ocean floor. People claim to remember past lives, I claim to remember a different, very different present life. The psychotic drones, where the mystic swims, they're drowning. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to an emergency broadcast release of the Astroflight Simulation podcast, where we navigate art and culture. Yeah, excuse me. We don't do that. We navigate the digital world through art and culture. And I have my recur- recurring guest, one of my uh, part-time co-hosts here, Mr. Gio Panachetti, to talk about the escalating war in Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Today is March 2nd about six, seven days since uh, Putin invaded Ukraine. And me and Gio were talking, I think just yesterday. And he was saying, uh, why hasn't anybody brought up Paul Virilio? Paul Virilio is probably the most prescient, at least the most prescient postmodern thinker, uh, if not one of the most prescient thinkers, period, on this type of subject to this particular uh, conflict. And, I, and unfortunately, you know, Paul Virilio is pretty underread. So hopefully if we discuss uh, the war through his thought and through his perspective, bringing in several other big thinkers um, will help expose people to his ideas and see how how far ahead of everything he was and how far ahead of the curve he was uh, and everything. Uh, The book I'm referring to mostly is Negative Horizon. It's actually the only Virilio book I've read. Well, I I read another one, but it was really just an interview with him, a long interview with him. and some of the things that are happening, he he basically predicted. Uh, but it, this is much more from the propaganda standpoint and the the media standpoint, uh, and 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 the sort of the mindset of the way war is waged. Um, more on the political side of it, more on the strategic side of it, and more on the uh, media side of it than the actual deployment of troops, uh, the strategy and the tactics in the field the use of hardware and things like that. Of course, that's very, very uh, important stuff to talk about. But uh, considering the fact that America isn't actually in this war right now, at least in in any overt sense, um, there's no American troops going to fight at the moment. We have to think about it a little bit differently than we did about the previous conflicts, which is not to say that it won't escalate and we won't get involved at some point. It sure looks like the chicken hawks in America and the liberals interestingly, right? The, the liberals, uh, the, the side of the people of peace and the people of, uh, uh, of, of understanding and letting people just be people are the ones who want to engage in this full-scale scale war in which, of course, Ukraine would be caught in between. Uh, Ukraine already is caught in between American foreign policy, EU foreign policy, and Russia. And uh, we would just, whatever's happening there, whatever Putin is doing, to those people, which is almost impossible to find out because of the American media. Um, well, it, we will exacerbate that and make make the catastrophe and make the suffering uh, 10 times worse, just like we did with the Arab Spring and Libya and Yemen, uh, which nobody talks about, uh, as well as Iraq. 
So we don't want to see that happen to Ukraine. So hopefully we can uh, have a little theory cell discussion here about some postmodern thinkers and, and get some some perspective because, and this is the last thing I'll say before I bring Gio in. Gio, I'm going to have you introduce Virilio, why you wanted to talk to Virilio and what some of the ideas and some of his perspectives are that make you think he's important. But the last thing I want to say is like the typical go-to for this type of thing is to quote uh, George Orwell and to quote Noam Chomsky. Um, not that those guys don't say some important things, but they don't even begin to go halfway. Um, especially, you know, George Orwell was right in uh, Amish to Catalonia, Catalonia, the way he talks about the way propaganda works. Uh, but it seems like that's that's like the only go to for for critique of propaganda, um, because George Orwell was a partisan, remember, and he did uh, take sides in that war. Um, so. Virilio is an anti-communist. Virilio is a reactionary conservative Catholic priest, actually. Uh, I'll, let Gio, I'll let Gio give the introduction to Virilio. Um, just my point being is this is not your standard, typical lefty, uh, you know, war is peace, uh, the, the, means, the mainstream media manufactures consent critique. And go ahead, Gio. All right. Um, <laughs> so Paul Virilio is very interesting because... Um, Astro gave a succinct um, introduction. Now, Paul Rillo being of the same class of French philosophers, and keep in mind that he's like relatively recent. He died in 2018. Incredible. I think um, Baudrillard died around like 2007 or so. Um, and he is, his whole life work was this obsession with speed and how what you would call what later thinkers such as... Um, you know, uh, who am I thinking of? Uh, Zygma Bauman, and then of course, John David Ebert, people would call hypermodernity, which is predicated on the speed of information technology in particular. But yet he engages with a lot of criticism of that from uh, Lul to, of course, the more, you know, champions of it, like McLuhan, of course, uh, Bo, Bo Jared in particular. And he was sort of, um, he revolutionized this study of futurism from a perspective that wasn't necessarily science fiction-y. He was looking at the logical outcome of speed. And I remember one time, I'll give you a very good analogy, not analogy, but a very good parable, let's say. One time I remember I was doing this uh, grad talk in my master's program when I was doing philosophy. And I had a really amazing um, critical theory professor where she, she, she was like, a rad femme throughout the eighties, but then she grew sour of that. So we were talking about Virilio once and it came up on one of the student um, critiques and she said, well, you know, Gio, you talk about, and this is at the time I was like a big, you know, new ager. Um, he's like, you know, Gio, you talk about Buddhism and all of this stuff and, and Zen and Satori. She goes, when you look at Virilio speed in the nature of information and the matrix of speed, what, he called um, dromology, which is the study of speed. Um, dromology being, I'm just looking up the quick definition, ancient Greek for race or racetrack of really applied to the activity of racing is the meaning, meaning in the mind that he coined the term dromology, the science or logic of speed uh, the, in speed, which changes the essential nature of things. She said, you know, when you think about it, the subject is engaged constantly in the nature of living in speed to the point where every relation becomes so incredibly 
bombastic in terms of how the subject takes in information that the subject becomes totally erased. And this is the later Virilio where he talks about this in his book, The Aesthetics of Disappearance, where he talks about cinema, talks about visual art. He talks about uh, war, of course, war is the perennial theme because to Virilio, he says this outright in Pure War, war is the mother of all technology. It is the mother of speed itself, just by the logistics of it. And of course, within that saying, he's taking up a lot of different thinkers from, you know, Foucault saying, you know, reversing Clausewitz's thing about, well, you know, war is politics by another means. No, politics is war by another means, meaning that the constant war of politics, it's within a model of war. So in particular, when it comes to this current conflict, we have this nature of the engagement of the speed of information. But to me, I will complicate Paul Virilio's work. And I would say that it is the blockages of information that he didn't anticipate, that Baudrillard didn't anticipate. That's my own thesis. The blockage of information in a war that is so driven by media perception, yet it is something that is incredibly rare to get meaningful footage or even a coherent narrative because there is this reintroduction of a mythopoetics. But I'm getting my head of myself. Before I go back to Astor, I want to um, read everyone a quote from the Aesthetics of Disappearance. Now, this is really, per- this is, this is just gets my, uh, you know, tingles going. So this is talking about, and it's of course about aesthetics. And I think this is a passage that even Bap would like. So he's talking about the taming of the shrew. In the 17th century, there appears in France some very strict rules around clothes, meaning the male abandon the right to beauty. But at the same time, be wearing of the uniform becomes obligatory. In spite of the opposition of the nobility, the evolution of military equipment is obviously linked to that of means of destruction, to the development of armament, to the change of maneuvers. The troop will soon no longer be the theatrical troop of the nobility. They no longer have any noble regalia. Still harboring their formal wear at the time of the attack that they will see them effectively and definitively exist, exit the scene. From uniformity, we pass to invisibility. As during, So see, see, the logic of war necessitates a form of invisibility of the soldier for various reasons, and a, and a uniformity which destroys the identity. Of course, you know, this is classic Zizak doing the pervert's guide to film where he's like, you know, uh, when you watch a full metal jacket, the dehumanization process comes about. So you all know this is pop philosophy crap. Um, <laughs> the authorities agree on the evidence advance of the renouncing bright colors and the manufacture of uniforms and adopting a habit of neutral shade to diminish visibility of troops in the field. As war now, there are only extras masses of extras assembled to make a great number after the color modern red too brilliant they pick sky blue so he's referring to the british feel gray gray green and finally english army khaki this color is really much more than a color the major concern being less with the identification than disintegration since the word comes from the hindustani khaki meaning color of dust the disappearance of the body's characteristics in the uniformity of civil or military dress goes along with the disappearance of the body in the undirectionality of speed. So again, what Bap talks about, you know, all beauty comes from the body. Now the body is totally disappeared from the equation and this comes about from war, but then later on, Virilio extends this to all aspects of life. Now what we have here in this current conflict is the disappearance even of that referent to individual subjectivity 
within the lives of people. Now they become decadent pawns upon the table of libs and neocons and uh, putting the Ukrainian flag in your bio. That becomes another regalia of the disappearance of the subject. Oh my God. I'm, oh, I really went off there, Astro. I don't know how you could top that one. Um, well, I'm not going to try to top that. But what I'm going to say is that we'll, we're going to back up here and dis, uh, discuss dramology and dromoscopy. <coughs> All of the stuff Geo talked about is in the book Negative Horizon, which he wrote in 1984. Uh, and Baudrillard was talking about a lot of this stuff in 19... Well, I can't remember exactly when he wrote the Iraq, uh, the Gulf War did not take place sometime in the 90s. And uh, they were right about everything that was coming and where everything was going. So I think a lot of their information, a lot of their perspective was informed by the Vietnam War, because both of them say that you're going to see big uh, units of troops and legions of troops facing off against each other in uniform. Um visibly uh, across the front, across the no man's land, which defined World War I and World War II. But that was also the traditional way of war in Europe and the West. Two uniformed armies, invisible you know, sight of each other, facing off across the no man's land, uh, fighting for territory. And they said that that was going to go away now, uh, that, that that was all over, that era was over, and the wars of the future were going to be fought uh, by citizens and by terrorists. And it was going to, their propaganda was become, going to become a much bigger factor in war than it ever has been in the past. And that propaganda was going to overtake the actual war. And that propaganda was going to be the primary front of the warfare. Uh, and that warfare was going to start to disappear, that the soldier was going to start to disappear. Um, and the 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 subject, the the antagonist, the uh, the subject under attack who has the uh, lesser capabilities to wage conventional war is actually going to commit acts to uh, prompt stronger forces to enter the war, even though that that is going to perhaps uh, lead lead to their destruction because they're fighting for ideology. They're not fighting for politics. Um, this is all communism. This is this is what communism did for warfare in the West and did war for warfare in the developed world, because they uh, they didn't have a traditional army to bring to the field to go against the state to, to overthrow it. So what they had to do was uh, arm the citizens and train the citizens. And the only way to do that, there's only there's two ways to do that. There's the, the communists like in South Africa and Latin America and South America who indoctrinated uh, a core group of zealots with ideology, communist ideology. Uh, and they were the ones who did the hard, brutal work, China as well, the hard, brutal work of uh, winning over the peasants, winning over the, the population and turning them into soldiers and turning the whole entire country into a unconventional you know, force of guerrilla warfare. None of this, well, no, I shouldn't say none of this. Much of this was done against the will of the people. Uh, so you had people like the Sendero Luminoso, um, just like the drug cartels, the communists act just like the drug cartels. And it's not an accident that all the communist, uh, you know, fighters in South America now from the 80s are all fucking drug runners. That's all they turned into the FARC. Uh, I don't know the name of them, but whoever's in Venezuela, they're all just running drugs now. The Nicaraguans. Um, their tactics like the Sendero Luminoso in Peru 
was to go into an indigenous village and uh, kill the adults and kidnap the children and turn them into soldiers. And they turned them into soldiers by having them do things like murder uh, uh, captured uh, enemy soldiers that they had. Um, so what the government of Peru did before Fujimori took over and really uh, wiped, uh, basically effectively wiped the Sendero Luminoso out is that they would arm, they would go to the countryside and arm the indigenous people and tell them to fight uh, against the communists when they came out of the jungle and tried to turn them into soldiers. So this is the process of war beginning to disappear. Uh, Baudrillard and Verilio knew about all this. This is a, 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 a citizens, a revolutionary force who are who are radicalized by ideology, uh, attacking regular citizens, and the government is putting guns in the hands of the regular citizens. And now you have these two forces opposing each other that are that are not soldiers. They're not conventional soldiers. They're not trained in warfare. And and this isn't even really like a war in the way we understand a war. The cumulative effect over time is that of a war. Right. But it's not there is no battle. There is no there is no uh, the heroism possible. Everything we know about war is out the window. So this is what they mean when they talk about the disappearance of war. Uh, and then the other thing I won't get into it because everybody understands the whole Muslim thing is that uh, with the communists, you have them indoctrinating people with this uh, rabid ideology, revolutionary ideology, whereas the the non soldiers, uh, the the non combatants, what we call the insurgents, in all these countries are, are uh, fused together with their common uh, religious fervor and their com common uh, religious belief. So again, what you have is regular citizens who, and, and, and it, it, the way it happened in, in Vietnam, but also in Afghanistan, is it's not like these people uh, are going to like an army barracks funded by the state. They're, they're like farming in the in the farming season and then they're going up during the fighting season in the mountains and uh picking up their kalashnikovs and they're going to fight and it's like uh just part of their life they're they're not soldiers at all they're Afga afghani people and the americans would tell the stories of like going through the fields during the day and some of the people working the you know opium fields or whatever they were in afghanistan would talk to them, talk to their face, give them fake information, and then at night run up into the mountains and join Al-Qaeda, uh, join the Taliban and come and fight them. So this is what they mean by the disappearance of war. Now, uh, so dromology and dromoscopy is Virilio's term for the, excuse me, the encircling of the entire world with our technology, with our media technology, our transportation technology, Geo is making very lewd gestures at me. It's very hard to keep my train of thought. Uh, with our media technology, our transportation technology, our warfare, we inframe in the globe. This is a Heideggerian term where he says the essence of technology is enframing. And he says enframing can be one of two things. It could be the skeleton upon which you hang your body, but could also be the bookcase upon which you stack all your books. I prefer the metaphor of like a picture frame. We are living in the world inside the painting while technology is the frame that's kind of defining our borders and defining the milieu upon which our lives play out. Uh, this physically comes to be over time. And McLuhan says this, when uh, satellites were put up into space and into orbit, we have literally now encased the world, uh, enframed, excuse me, the world in technology. And Virilio calls this 
dromography or droma dromoscopy. Uh, the, uh, our technology of speed has encircled the world. Um, now, this is like us going towards the horizon. We're reaching the horizon. The reason why his book is called Negative Horizon is because as we go towards the horizon, as we go into the future, as we try to conquer more territory, as we try to uh, uh, lessen the distance from point A to point B, the reason why we want to do that is so that we can exert our will over more space and over more people and over more uh, subjects. Um, we want to also lessen the distance between trade because that makes trade cheaper. We also want to be able to put our forces in the field faster. So that's why we keep going uh, towards the horizon. But as we go around, of course, the globe is circular. It's a sphere. The more we pursue the horizon, two things happen. The first is that we come back around on ourselves and it's like an Ouroboros uh, eating itself. But the other thing that happens is the, uh, the homeland where we're projecting ourselves from gets negated. Okay. So he calls this the negative horizon. The negative horizon is when you shoot towards the horizon in a jet plane and you go to grasp the distant horizon, the, where the jet plane started off from the horizon behind you, it's, uh, retracted backwards um, and you get farther and farther away from it. And the, the afterburner of the jet sort of uh, creates this, what he calls like a, uh, a, a basically a catastrophe, a natural disaster, uh, the burning of fossil fuels, uh, the igniting of the engine is like a, a metaphor that he uses for like the catastrophe that happens at home. So it's a simple example of this is like uh, global trade, um, manufacturing hubs like in Ohio and in the Midwest, uh, they get devastated. Uh, as we grasp the horizon, we send manufacturing overseas. Uh, we increase trade, we increase GDP, but the, the homeland is negated. The subject is negated. The, the, the livelihood and the identity of the people there are negated. Uh, and another thing he says is that warfare is negated because now we don't need to field uh, an entire army across the world. We have warfare technology in space uh, we at least have the eye in space that we can see down upon people and we can shoot, um, uh, you know, drone missiles at them and things like that. Or we can use our, our missile technology on, on land uh, to shoot way across the world. and We don't have to send an army there. Therefore, when you have uh, traditional weapons of war, they become huge targets. All these tanks and everything that you used to use to, to, to throw against your enemy to defeat them in this war of attrition, now they become liabilities. Uh, so as you increase speed and um, warfare is negated, all of a sudden the conventional weapons of war uh, become liabilities and they turn you into targets. That's why camouflage becomes so important and cloaking devices and, and hiding things. Um, so they're trying to pare back their conventional weapons of war because those are liabilities they have a lot of costs blah 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 the traditional warfare is negated right, i'm going to bring geo in here traditional warfare is negated and the soldier disappears and it becomes the citizenry it becomes uh the private person uh, uh using a uniform it makes it easier to identify yourself if you're trying to uh, wage urban guerrilla warfare and you're wearing a uniform you're going to become a target so the Uniforms disappear here. Let me bring Gio in. Yo, yo, yo. Um, that's a great point because if you actually read um, the essays that Virilio wrote around the Gulf, Gulf War I and then later the Iraq War, 
he notes that the um the very important point is that from the beginning from the very first bomb run where i don't know if people were alive back then i of course was only a little baby and we all, <laughs> around like uh, 92 i was just born um the very first action was for general schwarzkopf to send stealth bombers to destroy the comm towers of saddam hussein and he said that that was the most important point because you have this hyper technological apparatus of communication faced with an enemy in the dark it is no longer the physical darkness such as a Viet Cong in the bush it is now the technological and the communicative darkness of war that is important and he talks about this he talks about of course the nomad and of course if you want to bring in which we will later Deleuze and Guattari with imperceptibility that is of course a big theory and there is um people that go into how um this is such a terrible critique, by the way, but of course Zizek makes it where when you talk about the war machine, um, you know, all oh, the IDF used that against the, uh, but, but, you know, I mean, it can be interpreted either way, but when you get to the later works of Virilio, you get to the aesthetics of disappearance, you get to what it means to live within an information system, what it means to live within hypercommunicativity. communicativity. Um, but let's get back to the subject of war at hand. Let me pull up, a quote, actually, that is very inflammatory from, now this isn't from Virilio, this is Baudrillard. Um, this is from uh, The Gulf War Never Happened. This is page 51. By force of the media, the Lugan press, <laughs> oh God, um, the, the war liberates as, exponent, uh, as exponential mass of stupidity, not the particularity of stupidity of war, not the particular stupidity of war, which was considerable, but the professional and informational stupidity of those who pontificate in perpetual commentary on the event. All the bloviators, the pinochets for hire, the would-be raiders of the lost image, the CNN types, and all the master stingers of strategy and information who make us experience the emptiness of television as never before, course the emptiness of twitter as never before in this particular conflict this war it must be said constitutes a merciless test fortunately no one will hold this ex expert or general or the intellectual for hire to account for the idiocies or absurdities proliferated the day before <laughs> since those will be ceased by those the voices will be ceased by those who following the day in the manner everyone is a uh, uh, animated by the ultra rapid succession of phony events, pseudo events, and phony discourses, the laundering of stupidity by the es escalation of stupidity, which reconstitutes a sort of total innocence, namely the innocence of washed and bleached brains, stupefied, <laughs> like the disturbed lyrics says, stupefied, um, not by the violence, but by the sinister insignificance of the image. Now, does that not sound like the conflict nowadays? It is the laundering of the intellect, the laundering of the journalist that adds to the superficiality. It is the, precisely the speed of which we get useless information. Um, it's like the line from Nevermore, the band, uh, useless information for your useless little lives. 
I know it's so edgy, right? But it's true. It is the speed by which we are delivered information and it is the speed by which these information apparatuses themselves operate in order to sell you a narrative that the stupefying aspect of modern technology is leading to the complete disappearance and absence of the subject. And you can see this in these mass ritual events, one of them being the Gulf War, which is Baudrillard talking about. And now we're seeing in this conflict, not to say that there is a particular ritualism, but there is a sort of ritualism in the affect of the war itself. That is what is most important. It is the laundering of that affect which drives the speed and the force. You must denounce Putler. You must do this. You must put the Ukrainian flag in your bio. You know, we, we chopped out the, uh, the jab uh, thingies in our profile, you know, before back a month ago where we had, uh, you know, hashtag, uh, you know, what is airborne. Now these symbols have to change. And I will end on this. I'm giving this away. I wanted to write an essay for uh, I'm 1776 that it is interesting how people talk about the redditification of this conflict. Now, look at this, for instance. Look at the official account of the Ukrainian government saying that you must ban uh, Russia. You must ban Putler from Twitter. Now, we can laugh at that. We can say... Well, you know, um, in actuality, this is just like some Reddit, um, SJW, blah, blah, blah. This is some woke tactic. This is like very much a Western GAE driven strategy. But the deep message behind that is that when it comes down to it, there is a deep impact within this relation between information, this relation between the speed by which legitimacy is conferred or denied to a particular faction or a particular expression of subjectivity and to deny as we know from people i maybe see many people in the audience here who have on, are on their uh, fifth or tenth or twentieth uh, burner account we know that in the quote-unquote i am cringing at this term marketplace of ideas to be denied it's the absence of that marketplace it's the absence of that um the, the channel and the, let's call it sonic waves, the pool from which we gather information, that is a deeply symbolic and I would say religious victory akin to when they banned Trump, Orange Man. That was a beheading of the Hydra. But we notice that this is only virtual, that the real has to come about sometime. The real will be, who knows, in this war, what particular side is going to declare victory pretty pretty soon. But the real has to find a way to fight against that current of the information sea, the virtual. And so now you have this classic dichotomy between the real and the virtual that you will find in Virilio, Baudrillard, Foucault to an extent, but especially Deleuze and Guattari. So I'm going to hand this off to Astro. Um, I hope people understand. I mean... I think that nowadays we, we have to crucially look at these texts because they serve as a template for how we can experience this. And even uh, one last point, the, the, what motivated him to write this book, uh, Boger in particular, is that the seeding of war to public opinion 
to, to the ratings of CNN so that Wolfie Blitzer can sell you and not just sell you a narrative, but also sell you the capacity to sell you the narrative. Because as we know, the legitimacy of the 24 hour news cycle was born from the Gulf War One because Schwarzkopf put on a light show. And of course, you have other conflicts at the time that served this like the, the Balkans War. I mean, those were two. This is what Baudrillard is saying. War became too brutal and disgusting in Vietnam. Is same with the Balkans War. No one wants to see the, um, I can't say it for you know YouTube or Twitter purposes, the uh, RP camps. No one wants to see the uh, the gutted soldiers in the in the jungles of Vietnam. But people want to see a light show. That is the sanitization of war through information technology. That is the crucial point that Baudrillard gets at. And now we're seeing this, I would say, sanitization of the narrative by saying that I don't know. The Russians, they, they're enormous losses, six guerrillian uh, losses every day. But, you know, of course, there's no video evidence of it. There is an absence of that evidence for a precise reason. So I'm, maybe I'm just being too conspiratorial here, but that, you're at the point. I'm handing this off to you, Astro. Yeah, no, everything you're saying is uh, on point, spitting hot fire as usual. So, listen, what he's talking about is the eruption of the real into the virtual they're trying to the the, the hyper reality has become more real than the real according to Baudrillard so what we're seeing on our television to us is more real uh than the actual war because the war is happening across the world um now the the really simplistic explanation of the gulf war did not take place is that right there it, the gulf war did not take place for us and he says a, at least a couple times that it was real for the iraqis uh, he's only saying that for the Americans and the people who watch it on their television. But but here's the thing. Uh, when I was talking about the the armies being fielded by a government, a. A conscripted army being fielded by a government, it, they are no longer fighting other conscripted armies being trained and funded by the government. They are fighting true believers. The the communists and the. Um, excuse me, the communists and the uh, the uh, ISIS members, the um, the Islamic uh, fundamentalists are they're catalyzed and invigorated by ideology, whereas our soldiers are like it's a paycheck. And, uh, you know, yes, there's lots of true believers. I'm in no way trying to to put that down. Uh, the patriots, the true patriots who bravely go fight and die for us and truly believe what they're doing. But we all know that for what I would say is probably the vast majority of them. It's a paycheck. It's a way to get a stable life. It's a way to make a stable living, the way to get a future, a way to a certain form of professionalism. Uh, and we've seen time and time again that these conventional forces have a very difficult time engaging these uh, irregular uh, uh, <laughs> Gio is making so many faces. He's making it so hard for me. They have a very difficult time engaging these irregular uh, forces. So what these the regular the irregular forces being uh, true believers, they want to provoke a real war. They are not out there. Uh, they're not they're not stupid. They're not stupidly out there dancing around because they think they won. That is part of it. That is part of what makes them um uh, so, 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 uh, well, invigorated. But the other part of it is, is they do want to provoke a real war because they 
want to die for the cause. So they don't want this fake media propagandized uh, half-assed bullshit that we send to them. They want it really to come on. That's why they do things, and Baudrillard says this explicitly, that's why they do things like execute hostages on camera, because they want to they want to spark us into actually believing in this so that we actually attack them. They want to provoke our anger. And if you look at what's happening in, um, so they want, they want the, the real to break through the virtual to us and to make us act in the real and not placated by the virtual. And now think about everything I said before and apply it to the Ukraine. I hope it's quite clear how I was setting all that up because in the Ukraine, what you had is you had refugees trying to flee. Uh, they were being stopped by the government and they were given automatic weapons. I saw some numbers that said 15,000 automatic weapons were handed out in one weekend. Clearly, that is the disappearance of war that I'm talking about. That is not even in a regular force. That is just regular citizens being given guns. Some, some say they're being forced to. Uh, then you have somebody like Azov Battalion. The Azov Battalion, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. The Azov Battalion, they are the true believers and they are heavily armed and they have real experience fighting uh, against Russia and they are fueled by an ideology. They're the ones, they're the ones if you go on Telegram and you see pictures of uh, blown up bodies, burned out uh, personnel carriers with the, with the burned out bodies strewn across the street, uh, soldiers being tortured, excuse me, prisoners being, well, I actually haven't seen any vid videos of soldiers being tortured, but uh, they're in pretty compromised positions. They're made to call their moms and, and uh, beg for forgiveness. Um, I saw videos of people being executed in the street, uh, supposed Russian infiltrators, um, people in regular civilian clothing, I should add. This was all being done by the Azov Battalion because these are the true believers. These are the people who want the war. Uh, they want to bring their ideology into reality. They want it to come off the screen. They want it to come off the page and they want it to come into the real. Um, the last thing I'll say to bring it back to Virilio uh, directly about the negative horizon. When I say that um, you, you cannot over, overstate how much this level of propaganda fucks people up. Now I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here. We all know this. We see what it does to our people. We see, and this goes back to what Gio was saying about putting the, the flag in your bio, putting the, uh, putting the uh, jab in your bio. This level of, of, of ideology and constant, excuse me, I meant to say this level of propaganda, and this level of constant propaganda just breaks the brain and turns, them, turns the civilian people into uh, hamsters at the wheel. So you have people coming on Twitter, uh, uh, glare, uh, blaring for war, trumpeting that they want war some of them private citizens some of them work for the government some of them work for the media and it's all bullshit they don't know what's going on over there they don't know what the real consequences contrast that with the azov battalion who is like putting homemade caltrops out on the street to to disable personnel carriers and lighting the thing up with uh with machine gun fire there's a huge difference there's a huge gap between those two sorts of people and there's two different sorts of war with two different purposes uh, going on here. So what Virilio says is that when the, the, the horizon, right, is negated in our pursuit of speed, we, we negate uh, the horizon, the home horizon. I don't know what else to call it, the home front is negated. So as a result of that happening, you have the disappearance of war. So as war has to be like brought down and, and 
uh, uh, camouflaged. At the same time, that's the negative effect of the speed. The positive effect, and I don't mean positive in the sense that uh, it's good and the negative effect is bad. I mean, I mean that the actual uh, uh, weapons of war and the soldiers of war are are negated. Uh, the thing that is brought into being and 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 uh, magnified is the propaganda. So as the propaganda grows, speed increases the amount of propaganda and decreases the amount of hardware in the field. I'm going to give it over to Geo for a second. And uh, hopefully I was able to, Geo, you know, tie that into Baudrillard and the current situation. The reason I'm calling this space the Ukraine war did not take place is because the Iraq war did not take place is kind of a, a, a way to get a lot of uh, eyes on his story. Like, oh, what a what a crazy thing for him to say. What a hyperbolic thing for him to say. Of course, that's bullshit. The Iraq war did take place. Right. But and this is my last thought. Now it's totally come true. The Ukraine war did not take place for America. Perhaps we're going to get involved. But what we have now is we have full on warfare level propaganda for a war that we are not fighting. It's like it's like <laughs> unbelievable. We're, we're, we're getting inundated with with uh, World War Two level propaganda for a war that we're not even fighting because that's the only thing we can do. It's the only thing we have know how to do. My prediction, I may be proven to eat these words. My prediction is that we're never going to get into this war. I don't think America is going to get into this war in any conventional sense. I don't think we're going to conscript script troops. I don't think we're going to be sending battalions over there. I don't think we're going to be sending fighter jets over there. I think Putin is going to take the Ukraine and it's going to be his and it's going to stay his. I could be proven wrong, but I think this is going to be the first purely propaganda war. Orwell says, uh, you know, propaganda won uh, the Spanish Civil War. Well, yeah, the battle of, of because his side lost Spanish Civil War. That's why I hesitated there for a second. But the battle of propaganda was bigger in that war than the actual f fighting. But that war had fronts. That, and they, they, they were taking over enemy fortresses. They were stealing enemies' weapons and, and killing the enemy with their own weapons. We don't have that anymore now in America. We only have propaganda. Go ahead, Gio. Oh, that's amazing. Amazing points. Um, I want to bring just a very short quote that ties into this from Virilio's Aesthetics of Absence. But I will say that it's funny how Virilio is talking about this similar to Elul in the language of a lament, similar to how people can even interpret Baudrillard as a language of a lament. And that is what information technology is doing to us, which is very funny how Virilio arrives at an even more reactionary position. Uh, for people who don't know, the very infamous, famous, what have you, um, so-called uh, book where they submitted a bunch of fake postmodern sounding language uh, papers to these uh, French philosophy journals and all these normie cons, all the Steven Pinker types, they all laughed and said, oh, look, this is all nonsense. Like, you know, the Gab said, trying to read through Pomo laughing uh, in his, you know, well, anyways, I'm not going to, the James Lindsay's of the world, put it that way, the fake liberal con conservative normie cons, they look, Virilio was directly implicated in that so-called book by the uh, National Review of uh, fake conservat uh, conservatards. 
Um, Virilio arrives at an even more authentic reactionary position than anything, than certainly what anyone at National Review could ever muster. I mean, David French, come on. Anyways, I'm just going to insult um, our enemies here. This is the quote. And this kind of relates to what we were talking about, the nature of propaganda, as I always have to bring in metal lyrics to quote Sepultura, you know, uh, propaganda hides your scum. Uh, so, quote, the st- <laughs> I always have to bring in my metal lyrics. Um, the stage of photographic art today is really de passe since photography overcome by indifference seems from now on incapable of finding something new to photograph. Already collective thoughts imposed by diverse media aim at annihilating the originality of sensations, at dispensating with the presence in the world of people by furnishing them with stock information destined to program their memories. Memory itself becomes inflicted with the wounds of speed and technology. We now know that with the progress of electronics, we may envisage active prosthesis of intelligence. So this is again him stating a very old reactionary argument that goes way back to Socrates, even to some pre-Socratics, where every advancement of technics itself, and this is again, you know, bringing Heidegger here, every advancing of technics will atrophy another attribute of the self. Now, this is just the cost that we have to pay since the Gutenberg galaxy with print language, our memories fade and so forth. But now we have, think about this, the prosthesis of intelligence, especially when we're given a mass pseudo-identification event such as this. This isn't to say that Ukraine, people are not dying, people are suffering, people are, are, are going to have their lives destroyed. I mean, I'm, I was in contact recently, I shouldn't even say his name, but a person who is actually in, in Ukraine, um, who people will know if I say his name, I'm not going to say it, but uh, he's been getting into trouble just by disinformation campaigns against him, not to give it away. Um, but that's a testament to the pseudo-identification of particularly people in a Western audience with the nature. It is a prosthesis of sentiment, a prosthesis of intelligence itself. Because when you think about it, our recorded memories, and again, you know, philosophy of mind people go into this. This is like nerd theory cell stuff. But the prosthesis aspect of it, of the artificiality of information technology as it relates to memory, as it relates to sentiment, as it relates to even the categorization of knowledge itself. I mean, I don't have to, you know, um, go through a a 10-hour podcast uh, by uh, uh, the wideness sphere, uh, with you know who the thinker of irony is about how the, the Rand Corporation wants to manipulate our memories and the Rand Corporation is uh, completing the system of German idealism. But <laughs> I, I will say that there is something to be said about the way in which information is distributed and categorized and the way in which the disappearance of the self comes about through these mass events. Now, notice that in the last dwindling years, I would say, in, in uh, Astro, you mentioned the Iraq and Afghanistan war. The last dwindling years of the Obama administration, it's probably because um, Obama himself did this. Um, nobody cared. Did we care? Right up until that summer last year, when we, you know, the, the, the terrible defeat and the narrative spinning about how 
Joe Biden is the sin eater of all presidents. How he's going to be the sacrificial Girardian lamb for other presidents to never deal with Iraq and Afghanistan. It's like, this is nonsense. Nobody cared about Afghanistan for the past 10 years of that conflict. People didn't even know that it was going on. But that is the aesthetics of absence. That is how information has these selective blocks. Now we have another conflict that is, you know, again, to the point of a Bojard in terms of simulacra and simulation is a you know third, fourth order simulation because America doesn't even have troops on the ground. Yet we are made to care like it was in the beginning of the surge. I remember 2001. I mean, I was a kid, of course. But I still remember on the, the news, I remember when Colin Powell held up the vial of anthrax and everyone was scared. And I remember, you know, they had these, uh, you know, they would t- take films of these bio labs and how scared. Oh, my God, they're producing anthrax. And it's um, the, the band anthrax had to actually stop touring for a few months after that happened. People don't know that. Um, so I remember all of this. I remember nobody remembers it because we have an amnesia of information. Even the fa- here's another thing. Here's a radical thing before I hand it off to uh, to Astral. You notice how right before this happened, they got rid of live leaks. They they said the creators said, "Oh, we packed it in." No, nothing even no more to say. No, they got rid of it. They were probably pressured by some glowy to get rid of it. Anonymous. That's another aspect. Anonymous is a glowy operation. It has the aesthetics of hacking. It has this nostalgic millennial nostalgia for the hacker, like the Angelina Jolie movie. But when it comes specifically to live leaks, we use, I remember back in the day, there was this glut, uh, go on 4chan, go on 2chan. There was Iraq war images all the time. There was images of the jumpers from, you know, that 9-11. Um, now we have an absence of that. But at the same time, we have a hyper-reification of the narrative that is on ideological lines. Everything must be taken up within the hyper-real ideological machine of the gay, the global American empire, domestic politics of North American liberalism in particular between conservatives and liberals has to be writ large throughout the world, but only in the absence from which we can even see the war now, even the gruesome nature of war itself, apart if you go, you know, some of the darkest corners of uh, Telegram, can you even see this? No longer in the nightly news do we see the light show. The light show has disappeared from us. It is now the narrative itself. And this is the prosthesis of thinking that that uh, Virilio was talking about. Oh, boy, I'm handing it off to you, Astro. Excellent, Gio. Excellent. Well said. Um, in the uh, Gulf War did not take place essay, one of the things Baudrillard says is that you know, McLuhan tells us, right, that the medium is the message. I said that this war is pure propaganda uh, from the American side, of course. I mean this, we're talking about America here. Mostly we're talking about the experience of Americans having this war as a television show uh, for them, uh, as, as, a, as a media event for them. It's a media event. Anyway, McLuhan says the medium is the message, which means that only each individual medium can only express so much and uh, it exhausts itself at a certain point and you can only get so much of the, the message. You can only communicate so much of what you want to communicate through each individual media. Well, 
I called this war pure propaganda. Baudrillard says televisual media is pure message. It's uh, <laughs> I knew I was going to fuck that up. He says televisual media <laughs> is pure medium with no message. Uh, McLuhan calls this uh, hot versus cold media. Hot media gives you everything. So if you're reading a story, it explains to you what the characters are feeling, what the landscape looks like, what you're supposed to think about it in some cases. Uh, very often, even in the greatest, most you know, well-respected writers, Shakespeare and Dostoevsky, they hand you the message through the medium. They explain to you what you're supposed to think about it. They explain to you the moral of the story oftentimes. Whereas cold media, uh, it doesn't serve your senses uh, so completely and you have to fill in the blanks. And the message, uh, uh, excuse me, the example McLuhan likes to use is like fishnet stockings are sexier in a way than a bare naked leg because it, you know, it, it gives you gaps that your mind has to fill in. That's the key. It gives you gaps that your mind has to fill in and it's more tantalizing than bare naked flesh. Uh, so Baudrillard says televisual media is pure medium with no message. So the message is injected. The message is artificially inseminated into the media by either the people uh, reviewing the media or the subject receiving the media. Either you look at it and you think whatever your first impression is, and then you have to go fill in the gaps by researching it, or the person presenting it to you, and this is where we're getting to Ukraine, the person presenting it to you is telling you what to think about it. And a great example of this is where Geo mentioned, I'm using this example because Geo mentioned that uh, in the Gulf War, they shot, at a, they shot down a, a radio tower. There was a missile shot at a radio tower, missed it by a little, while, a little ways, and then it was shot again and they hit it. And the first video before they took it down, uh, I forgot the name of the Twitter account, but suffice it to say, I have them blocked. They said that they were shooting at a uh, Holocaust memorial. Now, how many people read that tweet and said, oh, my God, the Putin, Putler, the anti-Semite is fucking targeting uh, Holocaust memorials. This is an anti-Semitic war. And uh, that is the raison d'etre, in fact, of the invaders. And that's the reason why that's pure propaganda. That's the reason why America has to get involved to stop another Holocaust. Right. Then somebody else comes along, a, 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 a reporter, puts a picture of himself in front of the memorial and says, look, the memorial is not destroyed. Well, think about what I said about pure medium. With, with the message artificially inseminated. Think about what I said about your mind has to fill in the gaps. You look at that picture. What's the first thing you think? Well, the first thing you think is like, oh shit, well, maybe that was all bullshit. Maybe they weren't targeting the monument. But the next thing you th might think is, wait a second, what if he took that picture six months ago, a year ago? How do we know? How, how, we, we don't know. And this, you can apply this to everything, to everything that's going on. It's nothing but propaganda. Uh, uh, our media is telling us that 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 Putler is massacring people in the streets, but they don't they don't back it up. They don't show you any any video of this. Uh, at the same time, the Azov Battalion on Telegram is showing you pictures of personnel carriers being blown out. And they're saying, look, we're massacring these motherfuckers. We're killing them all. We're winning. Uh, but there's no way you can ever tell. There's no way you're going to be able to figure it out. Just especially. And the thing that makes the Internet so much uh 
more difficult and so much more chaotic and so much more destabilizing than cable television is that you don't just have pure medium coming at you. You have millions of artificially inseminated messages coming into your brain all at once. So you can just like rack them up, rack them up, rack them up. Like maybe this is happening. Maybe that's happening. And this is where conspiracy theories come in. But not just conspiracy theories, because that's the way the propaganda wants to spin it, because they're trying to say they control the narrative. So, you know, the negative horizon, the negative effect, the virulent effect, uh, the negative effect of the Internet and and the proliferation of media through televisual media through the Internet is the conspiracy thinking. But the positive effect, remember, I said positive, I mean, in accumulating, not in optimistic, uh, is the propaganda because the cable television and uh, uh, the politicians come along and they tell you what to think. They tell you how to interpret the uh, images and they hold certain images back and they replay other images over and over and over again. How many times have people in this country seen that the planes hit the World Trade Center? I guarantee you that some sizable portion of this population has seen the towers, uh, the planes hit the towers more times than they've seen any other video segment ever. Um, so that's the pure propaganda. And I just wanted to reiterate that. Uh, oh, right. So I wanted to use a, an anecdote. Excuse me. I want to end on an anecdote that Baudrillard gives in uh, the Gulf War did not take place. And I wanted to use this anecdote as a way to show you what I was saying before about how there's this long progression of the disappearance of war from World War II into the Vietnam War, into Afghanistan, excuse me, the first Gulf War, then Iraq and Afghanistan. And now to the point where war is being negated so much that uh, it's truly disappearing and we're not actually even in this war and how I said before we started recording, right? Remember I said before we started recording that these guys are prophetic and these guys are prophets. And the reality today is more true than what they predicted it to be. It, is beca- it has come more true than they said it would. And this anecdote is he's, he likens the Gulf War, but only partially likens the Gulf War to some product. I have no idea what it was. I never heard it before. It's completely obscure now, but he names the product. And he says that there was a huge advertising campaign where this product uh, was advertised like a blitzkrieg like crazy on all the networks and things like that. And everybody was excited and hyped up about it. And then something happened behind the scenes and the product never came out. So this was pure advertising with no commodity. The advertising overtook the commodity. The virtual displaced the real. Well, he was trying to liken that to the Gulf War where he says like they never delivered on the product. The war never really took place, but it kind of did. There was a war. There were casualties. Now uh, uh, it's come to its full fruition here. Th- this is a pure advertising marketing campaign with no product being delivered. Uh, we are not going into the war. The Ukraine war did not take place for the American people. Uh, Geo, follow up. Listen, uh, this is a bit of a free form discussion, but we are kind of moving through Virilio and Baudrillard. I think maybe after whatever re- rejoinder you had, might be a good time for you to bring in Deleuze and Guattari. We really need to talk about the treatise on nomenology. It's one of the most important chapters I've ever read. But um, in my opinion, well, I'll let Gio talk first. Gio, introduce the chapter after you finish your remarks, and we'll get into uh, Deleuze and Guattari momentarily. All right. That was brilliant. Um, I think that the nature of the absence of our involvement um, 
through sentiment, through virtuality, through these various aspects, um, they become hyper real in the sense that they're more real than real. They don't, we aren't physically there, but there is almost a metaphysics of it that, um, so this is from Pure War by Virilio. Exactly, that's what I said in the aesthetics of disappearance. The book's main idea is that social and political role of stopping. The break taken from sleep has been worked on a lot by psychoanalysis, but I have absolutely no confidence in psychoanalysis. In fact, all interruptions interest me from the smallest to the largest, which is death. Death is the interruption of knowledge. All interruptions are, and it's become, there is an interruption of knowledge at the time proper and it's consti uh, con constituted. All the rhythm of the alteration of consciousness and unconsciousness is uh, penalopsy. The pen uh, panoptical interpretation, Greek penokos frequence, which helps us exist in a duration which is our own, which we are conscious. All interruptions structure this consciousness and idealize it. So that's good to lead into Deleuze and Guattari because, of course, for people who've read A Thousand Plateaus, he talks about the refrain, how there's sort of like different um, time signatures and energy patterns and sort of like a different vibe in a single space, right? And sort of like a heterotopia of space within a single given area. There's people that are operating in different wavelengths and in different time spaces. So uh, Virilio here is saying that when it comes to the disruption of information, that is from which you get a lot of very interesting features that even you can bring in psychoanalysis into this. Uh, a thing that I've talked about for many years, I've written about even back in the Thermidor magazine days is the aspect of conspiracy theory in the modern world and how conspiracy theory is itself a product of this relation between information stoppages, uh, the speed of information itself, and also um, the nature of power, what, what Foucault would call power knowledge. I'm not going to go into a Foucault tangent because of course that is my field of expertise as everyone knows. Um, but I would say that when it comes to the event, let's call it the events of the last two years, let's call it the Covidian era. Um, this nature of information gaps, the nature of information disruption and how on the one end, it's a concern that there is quote unquote disinfo, but on the other hand, disinfo gets distributed widely and the narrative changes and people are expected to uh, exist within a radical shifting of that informational narrative, right? Now, a good person for this, uh, I actually did a podcast with him, but it was on, uh, an, again, a conspiracy thinker, uh, Francis C. Deck, rather, I would say the first, uh, the first proto-internet schizo poster. Uh, Jeffrey Schullenberger has done um, excellent work with his Outsider podcast on the very nature of the Covidian era and the nature of information itself. But we're seeing these similar themes. You know, you, I saw a meme the other day where it's the meme of like Homer disappearing into the bushes when he was obsessed with Flanders. I know, like I, I, I have such an un, early Simpsons is such a soft spot for me, but because it's such terrible crap propaganda nowadays. But there was one where Homer is wearing the mask. He's receding into the bushes. And now he's going forth with the uh, Ukrainian flag on his chest uh, as a meme meaning that the same apparatus of information breaks, the same sort of undergrounding, if you will, if that's even a word, of let's quote unquote, call it alternative facts or alternative information. I mean, that's what Trump said. That was the big thing in the beginning of the Trump era. You know, uh, fake, uh, fake news, post-truth. You know, all of a sudden journalists discovered postmodernism. 
All of a sudden, they discovered Baudrillard. Um, that led into the Covidian era like nothing else, because now we have this radical set of fissures between what people interpret to be true and the truth on the ground and the truth that they are told that has to change, right? The truth is a subject wholly to power knowledge. And this is what Baudrillard was getting at in war. You know, I know that's a, such a cliched phrase. The first casualty in war is the truth. No, people like Foucault and people like Baudrillard would say, and to Inverillo to an extent, would say that it's not that truth is a casualty of war. It's that a particular form of truth that is fluid, that is ever-changing within modern warfare, is produced by it. It's not that truth is a casualty of war. It's that the war in itself produces certain forms of truth and knowledges. That is what is more interesting. That is not this like normie, humanitarian, Kantian, liberal, post-enlightenment notion of truth as being this sort of, um, you know, Straussian, transhistorical thing that is something that's always there, ever present. No, truth is produced by those events. And of course, you can get into like um, Badu and Gadamer and even Virilio when talk about the nature of event as an event interrupting a, a certain sequence of that truth, an event interrupting an uprising from a certain, uh, what Deleuze would call plane of eminence of these interacting information fields and, and sort of um, what you would call the sedimenting of truth itself, the bricklage of different forms of knowledge is coming together in a particular epoch. The event interrupts and disrupts them. The Covidian era disrupted our notion of truth. The, the, the Trump even before that was an, another fissure. But of course it was this, and again, this gets to Deleuze, right? Because there was that initial disruption, but there was also, so you would call this deterritorialization if people have read Deleuze, but there's also a re-territorialization. Now this disruption of truth is now being framed as a negative. So of course, Orange Man, you know, he uh, brought in the post-truth era but now the libs found new sincerity. The libs found a way to get truth again by saying that, no, we have to forsake our principles of objectivity because we're faced with this evil fascism. Now in the Covidian era, true, oh, well, no, no, this truth has to be at the behest of experts. They become religious objects that you cannot question. And we have to do this for bare life. Now, I'm not going to get into Giorgio Gombin and the Covidian thing, but let's just say for this particular war is another example of that. It is, we have to have a state of exception over people's perceptions of reality itself in order to fulfill a higher, quote unquote, moral good, like I was saying in the preamble for people who are here. You have to link it to the system of baseless, humanitarian, secular public moralism in order to arrive at a, quote unquote, suspension of truth. You know, my, my good friend um, on Twitter, what's his name? Um, he had this meme. Uh, oh God, I'm so sorry. Uh, I forgot his name, but he had this meme. People have saw it where he's like, we're at the stage of, oh my God, just let people enjoy things when it comes to war propaganda. That is indicative of the state in which we operate within a hyperreal information apparatus. We have to sacrifice a quote unquote form of objectivity, which I mean, let's face it, objectivity was sort of a lie. Journalistic objectivity in particular was always a lie. Same as the work of art had to lie in order to produce itself with, you know, court painters and so forth. I can get into a whole thesis of that. But let's say that for the sake of it, you know, truth is not just a casualty 
Truth is that which is produced by these states of exception, by these disruptions of the order of things. That is what's more important. So when people say the truth is a casualty of war, no, war produces truth. That is the point. Uh, and, and of course, now let's go to Deleuze Atari. The war machine is fundamental to this. Now, Astro pointed off to Azov Battalion. You could also point to the Dumbass Region insurgents that work for, for uh, Putler. Um, the War Machine is a very interesting essay because many people have written this, um, have, have read this work uh, on nomadology, this sort of dichotomy. But one thing before Astral explains it, because, you know, I, I, I beat my brains out in grad school to understand this. I would caution against people reading Deleuze and Guattari and thinking that they are setting up a dichotomy that is like good or bad. No, they resist that oedipalization of discourse. They resist that hierarchy of knowledges, fundamentally. They're not saying that what is contrasted with the nomad is the state model. Then you have the nomad, which is this free-flowing Bedouin, you know, nomadic entity that can cross barriers, that smooths out striated space, which Astro will explain what that means. They're not saying, oh, the nomads are good. The nomads are these romantic Bedouin freedom fighters. And the state model is bad. No, that's a soy jack Reddit bugman interpretation of Deleuze. And too many bugmen read Deleuze. You know, there are even people that explain Deleuze and Atari. People that I was watching this video to, you know, refresh my mind by this guy on YouTube. He's one of these theory cells, but he, you know, he has million, thousands of views because he explains these texts. I could fucking do that. How come I didn't do that? You know, I should have gone on YouTube earlier. A pink, a plastic pills. The guy, when you go to an interview, he has the most tepid, reddit, soyjack, like left calm takes, but he's very good at explaining these theory cell texts. John David Ebert's the only exception. He's the only good one. Um, but I would say that the people that are clutching Deleuze and Guattari, there's a few routes you can go. There's the Nick Land, right accelerationist, horrorist, so right-wing that you crave for the annihilation of the human itself, of the subject itself, or you uh, read Deleuze Guattari and then you take HRT and there you go. So I would caution this sort of thinking around Deleuze Guattari that necessitates a moralization of these dichotomies. There's no such thing in Deleuze Guattari. They are, as Chomsky quoted to Foucault when they did that debate at Berkeley, he said, Foucault, you are the most amoral man in the world. Not immoral, amoral. This is what Deleuze Guattari wants to do. They're not telling you that there is this grand dichotomy, that the nomad is this perfect saintly figure that is this beautiful, creative Dionysian artist, of course, that can necessitate it. And the state model is evil, terrible fascism, of course, Deleuze. Because here's the thing, and that's another thing about fascism. Deleuze says that fascism is also a nomadology. So to say that state model bad, nomad good, no, Deleuze is saying that even in these lines of flight, which he calls these sort of creative breaking of the particular order around certain information uh, or certain systems, rather, he's saying that even those lines of flight can be pursued by the fascist. So he's not... So the people that read Deleuze and take HRT, I, they, there's a problem there, is there not? 
I'm getting worked up. Astro, you got to take the. I'm, 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 I'm going apoplectic right now. Take it away, my brother. This is why I love Geo so fucking much. Um, look, I. It's very hard for me not to devolve into like this extremely long soliloquy on what Baudrillard really fucking meant, because the popular understanding of Baudrillard doesn't understand what he meant, and it's hard for me not to just break down and give you this like hour-long critique of what a thousand plateaus is really about because people don't understand it it's not that they don't understand it it's that the 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 what geo said the the popular understanding of it has been totally diluted in Baudrillard's case by the matrix and you know uh undergraduate philosophy departments um and uh delusion guitari by the left uh delusion guitari are leftists so that's part of the problem but if this book wasn't uh so if this wasn't so sophisticated this book would probably be relegated to the the trash bin of history this book uh is is so i'm sorry elegantly written i have to use that term that uh it's fooled the hell out of socal and and the fashionable nonsense that's the name of his book he didn't understand a thousand plateaus at all. He had no right to write about that book, but I'm going to I'm going to skip all that. And all I'm going to do is tell you that if you really want to understand Baudrillard and Deleuze and Guattari, you have to read Nietzsche and you have to read after you're done reading Nietzsche. You have to read uh, Deleuze and Guattari. Then you have to read Nick Land because Nick Land, especially in certain chapters in Fang Numina and some of his uh, ex. Uh, 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 and Beyond Woke can tell us this. He can he can attest to this. Uh, Nick Land shows you how you can incorporate a critique of politics and a critique of accelerationism. Well, a critique of modernity through an accelerationist perspective using Deleuze and Guattari. And it's not left or right, honestly. That, and that book is not left or right. But I'm going to skip all that. That was a preamble. I have to boil it down to uh, Virilio, pure propaganda of, war of warfare, uh, the disappearance of the soldier, the disappearance of war, and uh, Deleuze Guattari's concept of the war machine. Uh, because there's too much else in the chapter that doesn't apply to the war in Ukraine. So I'll skip that. However, Gio, I hope when we finish with Ukraine, for everybody, uh, for people listening to this for posterity on my podcast and geos, I, I should announce, we didn't announce this. I'm recording a Twitter space right now. So this is live and we have a live audience. Uh, so to the live audience, once we finish with Ukraine, which I think we're pretty close to finishing with Ukraine, I hope we devolve into a free form discussion of the Luz Guattari because there's a lot to say about them in regards, especially to COVID, but other things as well. Anyway, without further ado, the war machine uh, Virilio and the disappearance of war. Everything I was saying before about the, the ideological true believers that are not uniform soldiers. Um, a, a quick uh, addendum to that comment, by the way. So, so the enemy force disappears. The enemy force becomes the population. Communism did that, as well as the fact that we started attacking countries that had shit, useless, fake armies like Iraq. Iraq just buckled underneath us as soon as we we entered their country both times both times because they were a fake army the whole time the whole thing was just a money laundering scheme really they never had an army and then it broke into the insurgency and that's where the real enemy was and these were people wearing civilian clothing 
who who were operating and fulfilling civilian roles and then fighting on the side or fighting in that moment, but they weren't professional soldiers. That was the disappearance of war on the enemy's side. The disappearance of war on our side is uh, cloaking devices, satellite jamming technology, camouflage uniforms. That's because we still have the conventional army. So we have to use technology to try to cloak it and make it difficult for them to, to visualize and to attack. Um, but the enemy side, okay, th this is why we lose. This is why we lose in Vietnam. This is why we lost in Afghanistan. And this is why we did so fucking poorly against ISIS, uh, even though we could have kicked their ass. Everybody talks about how it's because of the politics, about how the bureaucracy uh, hamstrung our, our armed forces. And that's true. But the and Deleuze and Guattari agree with that. They totally agree with that. But the way they explain it is that they they set up an arborescent model versus a rhizomatic model. And an arborescent model is sort of a solidified, stratified, to use the Heideggerian uh, terms, uh, entity that has become. It's in its final form. Any sort of arborescent entity is in its final form and it can't break free. It can't change. It was built to do certain things and it can only do those things. So when an, uh, something built on an arborescent model gets put into the field, be it education, government, law, warfare, it can only operate a, upon a preset, like written down formal set of laws and rules and it can't break and it's focused more on enforcing its internal laws and its internal logic than it is on accomplishing the mission at hand that's why we get bogged down in these quagmires that's why we don't have an exit strategy there's no such thing as an exit strategy for things like that right whereas a rhizomatic model a rhizomatic entity according to Deleuze and Guattari is more horizontal it's more um, um, sp uh, spontaneous and it's more and this is a term they use an assemblage. It's an assemblage of things that uh, coalesce together for some other reason. It's not being imposed upon them from the top down. So even though there's a, a strict ideology to Marxism and there's a strict religious dogma to Islam, the way it makes these people into quote unquote soldiers is uh, in a rhizomatic way because the entire population already comes imbued with the ideology. They were raised in Islam. Uh, or uh, it spreads, the communist propaganda spreads to the, and this is why Latin America had all these, and South Africa had all these communist revolutions, because you had all these disenfranchised people with nothing else to do and they had no purpose. So uh, they weren't being conscripted into the army. They were just left to hung out to dry uh, by the government or by the state or by the system. Uh, so, so they formed this like rhizomatic uh, 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 well, assemblage, right? Where they were coalesced together by this ideology. Machine, the term machine, when Deleuze and Guattari uh, use that term, what they mean is several assemblages coming together, working together, spontaneously like forming like Voltron to turn into this entity that can go on to get something done. An art movement, for example, is, is rhizomatic. It's not... Uh, implemented by the state. It's a bunch of different artists spontaneously feeding off each other, right? So a war machine is a, 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 a coalescing or a coalition, a loosely 
affiliated coalition of assemblages who assembled together for the purpose of war. And the losing Gutaris say that the war machine is a threat. The war machine is always uh, imminent to a society. It's always imminent to a civilization. This capacity is always uh, bubbling underneath the surface. And there's only a couple ways to, to, to deal with it. You can build it up yourself uh, and you can unleash it upon your enemy. You can build up the war machine and unleash it upon your enemy. This is why I love Blood Meridian because Blood Meridian uh, is a perfect, perfect example of this. Uh, uh, White's filibusterers and then Glanton's gang are uh, a loosely affiliated uh, group of savage uh, veterans and, and outlaws. And the state, the arborescent model of the Mexican state tries to wield this loosely assembled, loosely affiliated group of, of, of soldiers, uh, of warriors, we should call them, because they're not part of an army. And they try to unleash that against uh, the Comanche and the Apache in their Indian wars. And the Comanche and the Apache are themselves a war machine. They are an assemblage of people fighting against the state. And the Mexican army was stymied by them. They couldn't, they couldn't do it. So they, they tried uh, to unleash these filibusterers against them to put one war machine against another war machine. But Deleuze and Guattari say in the treatise on nomenology that the war machine is a threat to the state. And if the war machine picks up enough momentum and really gets going, and they pick up momentum by fighting, they pick up by momentum uh, uh, by being dispatched into the field and winning victories, they turn back on the state and the war machine uh, takes over the state. So the state has to keep the war machine in its place all the time. Two examples of this, one going one way, one going the other, is that when Caesar crosses the Rubicon, he's bringing the war machine back and turning it on the state because Caesar left the state. He left Imperial Rome and went out into the frontier. He went out into smooth space. This is a, a Deleuze and Guattarian term. They, 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 contra they contrast um, smooth and striated space. Smooth space has is impregnated with infinite possibilities, and its and, and directionality there is only uh, a vector, which means that uh, any entity acting within the smooth space, right, they're only using it as a passageway to get to where they want to go, as opposed to a striated space, which is like civilization, which would be the city of Rome itself. It's a grid. The streets are all set up to direct the flows of civilization in specific predetermined ways. This big, uh, this big boulevard is where the army marches down to have a parade to imbue civic nationalism upon the population. These smaller ones are uh, where uh, uh, trading carts go back and forth and everything goes in its own place. And there is no room for something like a war machine to get up and going, but you push it out onto the frontier uh, uh, into the smooth space where there, where there isn't any of this. Uh, it's this war machine picks up and starts going and Caesar goes and he ends up he ends up fighting the, the Gauls uh, to the point where he's like fighting disparate bands of Gauls and they they coalesce into their own war machine, into their own machinic assemblage to fight Caesar and Caesar wins. And then he turns this war machine that he's built on the frontier in the smooth space back onto the striated space and he wins the victory and he takes over. That's the war machine taking over the state. A, contradic uh, uh, a contrast to that is the relationship that Justinian and Belisarius had because Justinian would send Belisarius out to do these like impossible missions and 
time after time, Belisarius would win. The reason why Belisarius would win is because he was able to think on his feet in the field. He was not, he didn't have to go back to Washington like they did in Vietnam and in Afghanistan and ask for permission and be turned down and call in an airstrike. He was given uh, uh, the resources on hand and he made them work. And when he came back, uh, Belisarius was like, uh, I don't, I, uh, disenfranchised by uh, uh, Justinian and forced into uh, early retirement. And he had to call him out of early retirement to put down the Nika rebellion and put down the Nika revolt, which turned into a massacre, by the way. So that's a, an example of the war machine kind of being brought to heel by the state. But of course, the, the Byzantines underwent long, slow decay and decline after that. Uh, but they got the war machine under control. They had a highly trained, uh, uh, highly coherent army and military. Uh, whereas in Rome, uh, the war machine taking over the state turned it into 400 years of prosperity, which eventually broke down for other reasons. So this is what's happening in modern warfare. It's conventional arborescent uh, 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 conscripted armies fighting against pure war machines. An entire population is assembled around a certain ideology uh, to fight against and they're, they're rhizomatically uh, put together. They don't have like central command in the same way that we do. Uh, the Mongols is another example of like a rhizomatic nomad. That's why the, 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 the chapter on nomadology is named after the Mongols because it's well known that one of the reasons they were so successful is because their generals would go out thousands of miles away from central command and they would have to make decisions on their own. It was an amorphous uh, rhizomatic entity. They didn't have to go through the bureaucratic uh, chain of command. And, and, and this proved uh, too much for us in Vietnam. This proved too much for us in Afghanistan. Now, Ukraine is a little bit different uh, because the war machine in Ukraine is like the Azov Battalion because they are um, they are the Virilian, you know, disappearance of the soldier, the uh, Baudrillardian uh, uh, terrorists. I mean, I, I don't want to call them terrorists, but in the reason I said terrorists is because in the Gulf War did not take place. He uses the example of terrorists, the true believers who are uh, engaging in violence in an attempt to kind of to kind of spark a conflict. Um, they are the war machine. The the state giving 15,000 automatic weapons into their citizens or to their citizens are trying to create a war machine because their arborescent entity is unable to deal with this. It's like it's like Russia just waltzed right into the Ukraine and the fighting I'm seeing. I mean, it's like I, it, there's so much propaganda, you don't even know exactly what's going on, but it doesn't look like it's two conventional forces by any stretch of the imagination going head to head like they did in World War II. It looks much more like this asymmetrical warfare being waged by guerrilla fighters. And, you know, I don't know if, if there's anything to back this up, but I have heard reports and I, I look forward. And I think this is the unnamed person you were referring to, uh, Gio, that you didn't want to name. Uh, I'd like to back this up. And when we open this, this to discussion, I want people to tell me if this is true or not, that the citizens that have been handed automatic weapons by the Ukrainian government, who they're trying to turn into a war machine to wield against the invaders, supposedly they're like settling old scores with those weapons. And they're, uh, they're, they're, they're taking over, like engaging in gang warfare in Kiev because now all of a sudden they have automatic weapons. They're settling old scores. They're taking new turf. They're shaking people down. Um, 
you know, one of the things you see on Telegram is uh, these Azov people. And these are not necessarily all Azov people, by the way. I should just mention that I'm saying that because I'm seeing it on the Azov channel. I don't know if the actors in the videos are actually Azov themselves. But you see them kidnapping people and detaining people that they say are Russian sympathizers and uh, uh, either, you know, imprisoning them or in some cases shooting them. Well, do we know that for sure that those are Russian infiltrators and Russian sympathizers or are they settling old scores with some of their enemies and just saying, oh, that was a Russian. So that's why we killed them. You don't know. But either way, that's an example of the way the war machine can be turned back onto uh, uh, the structure. OK, Geo's, I'm going to bring Geo in. That's just another example of the way the war machine, uh, the, the state tries to wield it to fight this unconventional type of war uh, and it turns itself back on itself. One last thing I want to say, I forgot to mention the Russian separatists in the East uh, are another example, examples abound of uh, Virilio's disappearance of war, disappearance of the soldier, and they become regular people because um, some of the people that Azov is fighting are Russian separatists and they're backed and they're funded by Russia, supposedly. But they're regular citizens. They're, they're not, uh, they're, they're irregular fighters. They're not uh, professional soldiers. So, Gio, please, please, that, I went on much longer than I meant to. Please uh, add to what I was saying about the war machine and uh, the losing Qatari. All right. Um, I'm going to throw, before we get on, yes, here it is. Okay. This is the tweet I was referring to. Um, I'm sharing it at the top here by my good friend, Pureblood Marmot. Uh, his at is. Uh, upper lower class, great poster, go and follow him. That tweet really sums it up. Oh my God, let people enjoy things. Um, but to, to comment on the war machine, um, one has to realize that when Deleuze Guattari, they say a very interesting thing. When they say this, it really makes sense in terms of the foreign policy of the GAE. But I would say the global Anglo- empire rather than just american i would say that this would make sense for the politics of entirely the late at least the late 20th century if not the early 20th century into the 21st century they say that the state always appropriates that war machine the war machine is a gas canister of creativity and of insurgency in all things not just militarily but in the work of art and philosophy even in science, but of course, science is the ultimate arborescent field of knowledge. Um, they say that the war machine is appropriated by the state and is used by the state, is kind of like, you know, prostituted out by the state in order to fulfill certain ends, in order to make up for certain uh, intransigent aspects and residual powers that the state did not account for. The state is always appropriating the war machine and a very physical example, of course, that people always point to in every undergraduate essay in Delizigatari, in this particular um, essay within A Thousand Plateaus, because A Thousand Plateaus is really a combination of a bunch of different essays. Um, a good essay that maybe me and Astral can cover would be on uh, Becomings and Animal Becomings, where he mentions uh, Carlos Castaneda, he mentions Carl Jung very favorably. Um, and that was more Deleuze's stuff, because... 
if you're a well-equipped enough reader, you can probably pick out where Deleuze begins and Guattari ends and vice versa, because Guattari is very much a psychoanalyst. He is the one that is critiquing Freud. His work shines through in Anti-Oedipus, which is again, um, another very complicated book that you have to almost like read earlier works from Deleuze to understand, such as um, Logic of Sense. But um, you can pinpoint it. But in this chapter in particular, there's both of that aspect because there is also a psychoanalytic aspect to it as well. How the war machine will create different avenues of thought and art and philosophy in order to be appropriated by the state. And the best example, again, that people always use that students in every undergrad class on Deleuze uses, if they even have undergrad class on Deleuze, of course. Um, please do not go, I'm telling you this from experience, please do not go into academic philosophy departments nowadays. They're dying. All the good stuff is in literary departments where it's taken over by the worst people imaginable, human detritus. And, uh, but, but, you know, a lot of more, most philosophy professors are human detritus for other reasons. Um, they're, they really just, you know, analytic, uh, you know, uh, they, they really want to be sort of the reach around to uh, science and stem cells. Um, so don't go into philosophy, whatever you do, please. Um, the example everyone uses, of course, the Mujahideen in the Afghanistan war in the 80s, the Soviet Afghanistan war, because the ultimate war machine of the Mujahideen who are motivated by their religious fervor, who are motivated by a sort of religious nationalism. And it's funny because when it comes to the Iranian revolution of, ironically enough, Michel Foucault, the father of queer theory, I'm going to have an article about this. Uh, he had very favorable words to say about the Iranian revolution, one of the only successful religious and conservative revolutions in the world, really, in the 20th century. Um, but in Afghanistan, further along in Afghanistan, the ultimate example, of course, is the Americans uh, funding bin Laden and giving CIA covert training to the uh, various generals and tribal leaders that formed the Mushaideen. And as we know that later, they later became the Taliban. And they did this before with the Viet Minh that, you know, he uh, had Western education and training, uh, Ho Chi Minh, then later it became the Viet Cong. We all know this. This was in the uh, director's cut of Apocalypse Now. That was all real, by the way, when they're in that French colony. Um, America does this all the time. And the Mujahideen is a classic example of the war machine. So when Astro was talking about the different elements of having a war, a state model fight the war machine by not being able to move very later, uh, much later on, a few years later on in the war, the, um, the Soviet union, the, the Soviet army, which was largely made up of conscripts at the time, they discovered that they had to fight the Mujahideen on their level. And what did they use? They used not only radio information technology and radar, but they used helicopters to route their attacks because they discovered that they would act like many nomads, like Bedouins, like dervishers, like, um, uh, like well, the Viet Cong, where they would attack and they would disappear. But the Soviets discovered that because, especially in the Waziristan region, they were so good at this method, the Mujahideen, that they would use the helicopters to disrupt their exit strategy. That they needed something to get above the ground, to smooth out that strided space, to fight the American 
led American backed Mujahideen who would disappear in these mountain ambushes. And they discovered that if you do that, you would have one force attacking them head on another force in helicopters that would drop right on the landing zone. And they would um, like drop a few daisy cutters or whatever the Soviet equivalent was. And they would basically reroute them because, because the Mujahideen, they made up for their lack of uh, sophistication and training in numbers and ability to wage traditional warfare by doing these raids and ambushes. Of course, you know, I mean, if you're American, the, um, the uh, Revolutionary War was fought this way, where they would disrupt the British battle lines, who had a very traditional model of battle, where you set up in rows and you have these regalia and so forth. You know, I mean, that's like mythologized version of American history. I'm not the biggest buff in American history. I'm a leaf. I'm a pathetic leaf. But um, I think that's a good um, a good capstone to what we're seeing now, is that we're seeing this dichotomy between the real and the virtual that the virtual is being fought in the ground war of information, in particular Twitter and other outlets, Telegram and so forth. But when you have this sort of state machine behind you of the Western media apparatus, and of course they're winning in that regard, but notice how the real now is on, not to say that the Russian army is like a, you know, a, a nomad, obviously, but certainly there are elements of the Russian army, the Chechens, the paramilitaries in Donbass, that are probably pretty close to the war machine, pretty close to the nomad. But notice how the real has to come about through an ignorance of the virtual. Through an ignorance, not to say that the Russians aren't conscious of what people perceive them as. If they weren't, then I guarantee you, and people do not give Russia credit for this, not to say that, you know, I'm a Putin show. Uh, well, according to my co-host, I'm a Putin show at Breakthrough. By the way, tomorrow we're having an epic Ukrainian debate. It's going to be Moutet, a French journalist who's very pro-Ukrainian. And it's going to be me and Lev facing off. And in my corner will be none other than Scott Greer, ladies and gentlemen. On first time ever on Breakthrough with Scott Greer. He's going to be my tag team partner against the narrative. <laughs> Me and Lev are just, we're warring all over the TL. Me and Lev are warring on the DMs. Because apparently I'm a evil Putin show. Anyways, tomorrow on Break the Rules, 3 p.m. Eastern Central Time. Um, anyways, my final point is that the Russians are not ignorant of this media warfare. They're not ignorant of it. They know the perception. The way you know this is they haven't gone full on, you know, Rotko Milovich on the civilians. They haven't gone full Serbian Slobodan on this. Of course, I had this thread about where they're trying to paint the Russians as this. There are journalists that are saying, as soon as they enter Kiev, they're going to genocide them. Um, no, this is this is propaganda. I mean, I, I hope it doesn't happen. I'm pretty sure it's not going to happen because there's not enough sufficient um, dividing lines in terms of ethnicity or religion or worldview because, I mean, Russians, the Russians view Ukrainians as basically like them. So pray to God that no, nothing happens to civilians more than it has to, blah, 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 you know. Um, pray for a speedy end to this war. But I would say that the fact that the Russians are even hindering their own military operations in order to, um, I mean, in every war, civilian casualties are inevitability. That's a given. But the fact that they're willing to hinder their own military operations, the fact that you have Chechen soldiers ferrying civilians to safe zones. I mean, that's incredible. 
If you know the history of the Chechens, if you know the cost that the Russians had fighting the Chechnyans in the uh, early 2000s, Second Chechen War. I mean, it was terrible. I mean, the Chechens, of course, were um, very terrible example of the war machine. They were committing acts of terrorism. They bombed uh, a school school children in Beslan. And it only ceased when the Russian oligarchs basically handed the Chechens a bunch of money. And now, of course, um, what's the guy's name? Uh, the guy that runs Chechnya. He uh, He's best friends with Putin now. Um, but according to, again, according to my co-host, that's a bad thing. Um, but no, the fact that they are willing to still have some credence to the information war, um, shows that people are not wholly immune from the virtual. Uh, and, and here's the thing. There are public atrocities that still happen, but it's just sponsored by the state, by the, the GAE, by the, the world power. What happened in Libya? Notice how we don't see a lot of footage. I mean, what happened to Gaddafi in particular, I don't even want to say on this Twitter space, but there is still this whole thesis that these Californian ideology people that thought that the information age was going to liberate humanity from all violence, that, you know, the Steven Pinker violence is at its end because we have communicative technologies. We have what um, Habermas called communicative rationality. No, that's a complete fiction. There was still... When the internet was getting off, there was still the Balkan Wars. You know, you could see what was happening. There was still what Libya, the color revolutions. It's just that we have a selective break of in which the media apparatus is willing to focus on each particular conflict for each particular ideological end of the state model, which is the GAE. That is the difference. If there was atrocities happening against the civilians in Ukraine, like, I mean, whole skill. Slobodan Milosevic level atrocities, you would know about it, right? But so far, we're not seeing that. And that is a testament to how the information age is not wholly um, immune from the pressures of whatever dominant power knowledge system is in place. That is a total tech bro utopianism, Californian ideology phantom that doesn't exist anymore. You know, there still is massacres, even with the age of cell phones and camera phones. So, yeah, um, I don't know if Astro wants to open this up to people, but uh, this has been amazing. I'm kind of pooped. It's almost 12 o'clock, my God, but I'm still going. So uh, uh, and we have our lovely audience. I don't know. Uh, so I'll hand it off to you, Astro, what, what you want to do with this. Let me uh, jump in real quick. Just hit the mute button to uh, clarify something I've been talking about this whole time that you just have, have evoked that I wanted to point out to clarify something I was saying in relation to what you're saying about the pure propaganda and the disappearance of the war uh, and the, the mediator between both the public perception of the war and the actual war, because that's mostly what we've been talking about, at least in the Baudrillardian terms. But the other mediator that the media excuse me, it acts as a mediator, not just between that, but also between the powers in control of the opposing forces, because uh, it has the, the media has a paradoxical effect on the two sides. Well, let's think about this as three sides, really, because there's the U.S., there's the Ukrainians, and there's the Russians. Uh, but in the previous examples, like with uh, Middle Eastern countries, Iraq and Afghanistan, um, it wasn't quite the same. It was us versus them in, in a more direct way, at least. 
is that Putin knows that if he cr creates a violent act on camera, it's going to provoke the enemy. It's not going to do what he wants it to do. He he would he would use violence to subdue his enemy, but it's just going to get them stirred up uh, us because of the cameras. It has to happen off camera if it's going to happen at all. Whereas the so that prevents him from committing violence. The other side, the irregular side, the war machine side commits the violence for the very same reason, because they want it to happen on screen because they want it to provoke a conflict. So I'm trying to say Putin. And then uh, after this, start requesting the mic, people. We're going to start uh, taking calls here because I've I've officially run out of steam. Putin is trying to downplay or completely disengage from public displays of violence because he knows it's going to have the opposite effect. It's going to it's going to put the world really against him. He's not going to be able to defend himself in that way and say, I didn't commit atrocities. They've been lying about me all the time. No, it's going to be true. And it's going to probably actually stoke popular support against him. And it, it might get uh, foreign powers involved into the war and drag them into the war, uh, which is the exact opposite of what he wants. Whereas his opponents, that's exactly what they want. That's exactly why the terrorists put uh, uh, execute civilians on screen, because they want to drag these people in the war because they, they want to become martyrs. Um, so, you know, I wanted to tie that up in a much neater little package. But uh, we have been going for about two hours. I'm I'm down to hang out and talk about this more because there's a lot in A Thousand Plateaus that also applies to uh, COVID that we didn't even talk about. But uh, there's people in the audience that I want to bring in here. So I'm going to do that instead. But I guess we'll have to just make a part two. So I'm going to sign off the Zoom. I'm going to stay on the Zoom with you, Gio, but I'm going to stop the recording. This will be the end of the podcast episode. The Twitter space is going to continue to record, though, and uh, we're going to keep going. I have I have a, good, a, a little bit more time, but I can't I can't pontificate anymore. <laughs> I, uh, I think I spent I'm spent here. So recording ending.